This is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and we're running down some of the top stories of the week. Don't forget to check out the Daily Dive Monday through Friday for more news without the noise. We started off the week by finding out that Leslie Moonves, CEO of CBS, was done. He was out. He wasn't going to be there because of allegations that he was sexually assaulting and sexually harassing some females over the course of his career. There was a piece in The New Yorker written by Ronan Farrow. It details allegations from the 80s all the way to the 2000s. And I brought in my producer, Miranda, to talk about what the conditions of him leaving were. He's still going to be a part of CBS. Les Moonves is set to still have a pretty significant place at CBS. In the meantime, while he's being investigated, he's going to remain as an unpaid advisor to CBS, which is part of his termination agreement. But on the table is a prospective $120 million payout. And that's on a holdover trust, just waiting to see the results of the investigation. Because of a confidentiality clause in regards to this, we may never see that full report. The money he's going to be paid out will depend on if they find that there was any wrongdoing on his part. If there was, he gets nothing. If there isn't any wrongdoing, he'll get paid out that money. I think 20 million of that is going to go towards Me Too charities and causes. You know, we obviously had Harvey Weinstein, but Les Moonves is the most successful, highest ranking person in a company like this, in this situation that is being ousted because of allegations of sexual harassment and whatnot. And it shows you how much power he has still with CBS, even in their termination agreement, they're keeping him as an unpaid advisor. I mean, that just sounds crazy. Most people are willing to just cut your losses and go, but they still want to keep him on that. And I'm sure a lot of people are not going to be happy about that. It speaks to how respected and liked he is over at CBS. Aside from these allegations, he's incredibly valuable to CBS as a company, and he is in charge of this situation going on with the Redstone family and securing CBS from Viacom. Something that we learned in the Ronan Farrow piece was that at one point he mentioned to some members of the CBS board that there was some type of LAPD investigation into some of the wrongdoing that he did. I know that along with Leslie Moonves moving out, they also removed a bunch of board members. They brought in a, a few other people. So they brought in six more. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just so crazy to know if who those people were and if they knew that there was this investigation. Well, you don't want a board stacked in favor of someone being investigated. And that's what this is all about is they removed the people who were hardcore Les Moonves people and replaced him with uh, six neutral parties, you could say, because he had fostered a culture of unquestioned respect and power. Let's talk a little bit about the Ronan Farrow piece. He had already had an article where six women came out and were alleging some misconduct. He just had another one, which really prompted the rest of this, which really prompted his ouster, Leslie Moonves' ouster. But he had a story with six new women. What do we know about those ladies? In his update, he detailed other stories of sexual assault and abuse, including Phyllis Golden Gottlieb, who detailed that she reported her incidences to the LAPD. And he, at some points, would physically restrain her, force her to perform oral sex on him. They worked together in the late 1980s. And when she started to push back against him, he would do things like 
physically attack her and other psychological torture like every two days relocate her office to progressively worse, smaller, dark, isolated spaces. Yeah, he called her names. And and as you mentioned, she went to the LAPD late last year with news of this. This was the one that Leslie Moonves knew about. This is the ones that he told his board members that there's this type of investigation going on about me. They obviously still didn't care at that time because they were defending him. So that was one of the ladies. Who else was in uh, featured in the piece? The second one we're going to speak about is a woman, Jessica Pallingston, who worked for several years as an assistant to various Warner Brothers executives. And then she went and moved to work for some kind of an assistant agency where they'd bring her to different people who needed help. And several times she got assigned to Les Moonves. Well, the first time she ever was assigned to him, she had to meet him at a hotel room, which sends off the red flags. But she said she got there early. He answered the door in a bathrobe, excused himself and came back fully dressed. So bells didn't go off until he offered her a glass of wine at 10 a.m., which she accepted, drank, and then he started getting personal, asking sexual questions, asked her for a massage. And when she was bad at a massage, he turned pretty cold. Apparently, the only thing that saved her that time was that she had some type of panic attack. She was physically shaking and and he did take that sign and said, all right, you know, nothing's going to happen anymore. But he had the most awkward thing as he left. She said that as he left, he took my hand and shook it and said, you did a great job. You know, it's just so creepy the way he still maintained the aggressiveness, the authority that he had over her is like, hey, I'm your boss still. Obviously, you're not going to say anything about this. She got assigned to him a couple of more times. And ultimately, it did have to go further because she wanted to keep her job. She didn't want to get exiled from the industry, but she psychologically told herself that she played it off as if they were having an affair or she liked it until it wasn't until years later that she realized exactly what did happen to her. You know, CBS is going to come across a lot of changes because of this stuff. One of the other things that they're going to have to square away is that of Jeff Fager. He's the 60 minutes executive producer. He's the former CBS news chairman. And in, there was more details about him in the Ronan Farrow piece as well. Yeah, Oscar, it seems like CBS just has a pretty bad culture of this type of behavior over there. Jeff Fager, like you said, is being investigated. 19 current and former employees have said that the executive producer of 60 Minutes allows harassment in the division, not only participating in it himself, but then allowing other men to participate in it as well. If they get reported, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't uh, reprimand them and he doesn't report them to any higher ups. They nicknamed a move that he did the Fager arm where he'd go and grope a woman or something like that. And it was kind of a, hey, welcome to the team. You're a rite of, of passage. Yeah, a rite of passage. So, I mean, this speaks to the culture of this kind of stuff happening at CBS. So, I mean, they have a lot of stuff to square away. We still have to wait for the Les Moonves investigation to work itself out and see what happens there. Uh, the story will not be going away. Wow, I said more was going to happen, and it happened just a few days later. We were talking about Jeff Fager and this culture they had at CBS. What happened to Jeff Fager, Miranda? Oscar, within 72 hours of Les Moonves being canned from CBS, Jeff Fager was canned from CBS. His 36-year career ended not over the sexual assault allegations, but over a mean text he sent to one of his reporters. I know, that's so crazy. It's thinly veiled. Obviously, they were looking for any way to get him out of there. And they said that he violated some other company policy. I guess it's being mean to people. (laughs) What did that text say and who was it directed at? Well, it was directed towards a reporter named Jerrica Duncan, who is a CBS reporter assigned to look into the sexual assault allegations of Jeff Fager and Les Moonves. So he sent her a text that read, 
There are people who lost their jobs trying to harm me. And if you pass on these damaging claims without your own reporting to back them up, that will become a serious problem. And she ended up reading that on Wednesday evening CBS News report. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a threat straight out. In his own statement, Fager called the allegations false, but he did admit to sending a harsh text demanding that she be fair in covering the story. That's his read of the text that he sent. Wow. I mean, it's so crazy. The Me Too movement has taken down, and rightly so, so many people that have mistreated women over the course of so many years. And we know that Hollywood has just been this hotbed of this bad behavior. One of the stories I enjoyed covering the most this past week was talking to Ken Kashenda. He invented the touchscreen keyboard autocorrection for the original iPhone. I mean, it's one of those things that I use every day. I'm an iPhone user and I both love and hate the autocorrect feature. I mean, when I'm writing something and I make a mistake, it saves my life because it does give me the correct words. But sometimes I want to put in something naughtier and it takes it out. I asked him about it, too. I asked him, why is it that the autocorrect puts in duck when you're trying to write in some other salty language? So it was a fun interview. We talked to Ken Kashenda. He has a new book out called Creative Selection inside Apple's design process during the golden age of Steve Jobs. And I started off by asking him what it was like working on this project. Well, it was stressful. I'll tell you, the whole plan for the iPhone involved getting rid of that hardware keyboard that was so familiar and so successful to smartphone users in the pre-iPhone era. I mean, everybody remembers the BlackBerry right. I had one. and it's nicknamed the Crackberry, which of course <laughs> is a comment on how well people liked their keyboard on that device. And so the challenge for the iPhone was to take the hardware keyboard that everybody expected and change it to software. Beyond the actual touchscreen and all the gestures and everything, that really was almost the most important thing about the new iPhone is because that's, you need to compete with that other thing. Right. And when the keyboard became software, it meant that it could get out of the way when you weren't typing. And this opened the device for apps so that you could look at full screen photos and play full screen games, turn the device to landscape and have that seem like a natural way to hold the device. So it was a key concept for the product from the beginning. How long did you guys work on the autocorrect and, and the keyboard for the original iPhone? The development effort, when I joined it, it took about 18 months to get from a very early days where we had just some simple concepts like inertial scrolling and Springboard, the app launching screen, to the day that Steve was holding up a finished phone on stage, uh, announcing it to the world. So it was about 18 months of pretty intense work. Initially, you guys had to keep it secret because it, well, the iPhone had not really been announced yet or anything. So how was the, all the trials going with making this thing actually work? We had a way of approaching our work that was based on demos. We would come up with ideas and try to get a little bit of inspiration for how the software might work. But then we turned right around and tried to make something we could try out right away. When I was working on autocorrection, I would write a new piece of code. And as soon as possible, I'd grab somebody in the hallway or poke my head into the office next to me and say, here, here, come try this. And it was that process 
process of making those demos and getting that feedback as soon as possible that then drove the round after round of refinement and improvement that made a shippable product from what was pretty humble beginnings. Let's get a little technical. How does it actually work, the autocorrect feature? A lot of times you're looking at keys that are next to each other and you have to make the educated guess to really figure out what you're trying to say. But so how, do, how does this all work? For the original iPhone, the breakthrough idea was that when you type a word, what you're really doing is making a pattern. I like to think of it as each tap is a star and the pattern that you make when you type a word is a constellation. And so, fortunately, it works out that most words look different from each other. So the constellations have a shape. And if you look at the shape that a person types and compare it to all the words in the dictionary, usually there's a best match that that makes the most sense. So that was the key idea to make a, a little bit of a pun there. The key idea was that when you type, you make pictures that look like words in a dictionary. Let's talk about bad words for a little moment. Everybody puts in a couple of salty things in their text messages sometimes, and it always changes it to something not so bad. Ducking comes to mind. How did you guys decide to use those as alternatives for actual words or even putting in those bad words? Well, first of all, I have to apologize to all those people out there that I've gotten in the way of their expletives over all the years. But here, here's a way to think about it. Usually we're frustrated when we want to put that salty language in and the keyboard autocorrects it out. But look at the opposite case. Let's say you're on vacation. You went and you rented a house on a lake somewhere. And there's some beautiful waterfowl out on the lake. And you want to text your grandma to tell her and send her a photo to say how beautiful the ducks look on the lake. <laughs> well, you don't want that to go the other way, right. do you? So you really, right. you're, what you're saying is you have everybody's back. Got everybody's back when they're texting grandma. Yep. That's good. And, and you guys had to research all sorts of different words and actually put them into the dictionary so that the feature would never choose those words. Yeah, right. There are some countries that even have laws that prevent the use of certain language. And mostly this comes into the area of hate speech. And certainly when we were putting out this product to be friendly and useful for people, we did not want the keyboard to seem helpful in uh, typing slurs or demeaning people. That was just not the spirit of the product that we were trying to make. So we had to research what all of these nasty, horrible, awful words were, put them in the dictionary, but mark them especially so that the autocorrection algorithm would always skip them. It would recognize them, but it wouldn't give them to you. Tell us about the new book, Creative Selection, and, and also working with Steve Jobs. He's such an icon now in the technological industry. He had kind of a reputation as being a jerk sometimes. What's your experience with all that? Well, I wrote the book to talk about those times when we were making the iPhone and Steve was still around making all the product decisions for Apple. And a big part of what inspired me was that I started at Apple in 2001 when Apple was an underdog. It didn't have the hit products that we just take for granted right now. And when I joined in June of 2001, the iPod 
hadn't even come out yet. That oh, was wow. four months in the future. And so I worked and, and contributed to these changes that that took Apple from you know a five percent market share in the personal computer market to being a trillion dollar company. Now, naturally, a lot of other people had played their role too, but I was there working with some of them and and contributing my part, like the like with the keyboard on the iPhone. And so, I wanted to tell some of the stories about those times and what it was like to demo to Steve and and try to get his approval. What was so that, that like? How does it feel getting approval from a Steve Jobs, you know, when he, yeah, when he well, actually likes is, something that you're giving him? Yeah, he could be pretty intimidating. I mean, it, the, the, the reality of it is much like the, the legend or, or what people believe. But here's the thing about Steve is that he was so focused on making great products. That's what he cared about. And so when people say that, well, he could act like a jerk, I don't really look at it that way. He was just very blunt and very clear in his criticism. So if I brought him a demo and if he didn't like it, if he didn't think that it was up to Apple standards, well, he said so. And he didn't waste any time trying to make sure that he didn't hurt my feelings. That was part of the culture of the company. You knew that you were going to get it loud and you're going to get it straight from him. And at the same time, if he liked your work, well, he could be very gracious and thank you. And he did thank me a couple times when I, you know, I finally worked through all the issues and brought him something that he was willing to say, yeah, that's ready to go into a product. But that's the best way to understand how Steve approached his role at Apple is he was the editor in chief. His was the last word and you needed to get his approval to get software or hardware or designs or, or anything into the Apple product and into people's hands. How did you feel about autocorrect when it had as its hiccups and, and whatnot on, on the process? Well, he was worried as we all were. We sometimes called the keyboard a science project, which kind of implies that it's a little researchy. <laughs> Most of the time when we started working on a project, we were pretty sure that we could deliver it and, and, and that it was the work and the time was into refining and honing and making everything as beautiful and well-created, well crafted as possible. That wasn't really the case with the keyboard. We didn't know if we could come up with a good solution. So all of us were in the same boat and I couldn't have done the work that I did if there wasn't this team of people around me giving constant feedback and support and sometimes a kick in the butt to just keep going and throwing out the weak ideas and keeping the strong ones. And you just keep, man, we, we just kept going and eventually we we, you know, came up with the solution that we all have now, right? As, uh, as I say, lobe it or gate it, right? Love it or hate it. <laughs> right. Well, I'm sure as much as everybody can hate it at times, I, really everybody does thank you for it because we can't live without it. As, like you said, we'll be making mistakes all over the place. We're talking to Ken Koshenda. He created the touchscreen keyboard autocorrection for the original iPhone. He's got a new book out called Creative Selection, Inside Apple's Design Process During the Golden Age of Steve jobs. Thank you very much, Ken. Thanks very much. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.